Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Good afternoon. Welcome to the program, and today we really are going to take everyone out of their comfort zone. This isn't Wanda Wallace speaking. This is Davia Temin. I'm a crisis and reputation coach uh, who works with uh, to create, enhance, and save reputations, and I've been a guest on Wanda's show a number of times, talking about crisis in the workplace and careers, etc., But today, we thought that since everybody is really interested in what Wanda does, we would turn the tables and the interviewer would be interviewed. So I'm going to interview your host, Wanda Wallace, and a play host myself. So Wanda, it is so delightful to have you here with us on your own show. Thank you very much, Davia. It's good to have you doing this for me as well. So I'm looking forward to being on the other side of the equation for a change. That's right. It always helps to know what the other side is feeling and experiencing. So the shoe is on the other foot. Wanda, I'm sure that everybody who has been following your podcast uh, is interested in knowing a little bit more about who you are uh, and um, what you do every day around the world, because I know you travel around the world. I think you're in London right now. So can you tell us a little bit more in a deeper dive about your practice and what it is you do? Okay, so I talk with leaders around the world, with women and with men, and the focus is on helping them do a better job of their leading. I used to joke and say, I'm either working with a bad manager or a bad employee. And that's an under, I mean, that's a joke. It's not an accurate representation. If you really drill down what I do, fundamentally, it's about helping people have better relationships and therefore better conversations. Because I would argue that at the end of the day, leadership is all about the quality of the conversation. That's how you do everything that you do as a leader, from influence to giving difficult messages to coaching to hiring to inspiration, to motivation, to conflict, to difficult. I mean, all of it is around the quality of the conversations, and that's what I really do. But the, I want to get a little bit deeper answer to this one, Davia, because um, I got pushed by a couple of my radio show guests, actually, um, Aaron Hurst and Arthur Woods and Steve Miller, to name a couple, to think more deeply about this whole notion of purpose. You know, so... We hear a lot from younger generations asking about purpose and wanting to work in purpose-led organizations, and purpose-led is one of the hot words. So I took a deep dive into this in a number of places and doing some certification on it as well, and I got pushed, actually by Aaron, to think about my own purpose and the power of telling my purpose to the world. So I've been doing that, and I'm finding that people are kind of really getting it. So let me tell you a little bit about my purpose, if I can. And it's really, when I look at what I want to do, it's fundamentally about changing the world. I really am one of those dreamers that believe I can have an impact in how the world functions. But for me, that's going to come through the quality of the work that we do. 
And if you think about how stressful it is at work, how much goes wrong, if we could just change the quality of the conversations, the quality of work we do at work, how much better lives would be. And that's my purpose. So there are lots of different ways, Wanda, to live one's purpose. And, of course, that was going to be my next question, but I think you're both the interviewer and the interviewed still, so that's quite great. Um, how do you live that purpose every day? Well, you know, it takes many different forms. Um, so first of all, it's a personal belief. It's just a, I mean, I just, to my core, believe that if we can all, me, me as a person as well as anyone I'm helping, whether that's an individual and sitting in front of me or a class or group that's in front of me or a top team that's in front of me. I believe that if we get out of our own head and our own interpretation of what's in front of us, what's happening, what the dynamics are, that there are other ways to see the situation and those other ways always open up better possibilities. They open up different ways to say the message. They open up a way to compromise in a slightly different way that is including more people. It's just opening that view. And it's so easy to say that. I guess the best way is to give you an example. Yesterday, I was working with one of my clients, and it was a series of conversations with individuals, so mostly coaching, and then a seminar that I was leading for some managers as well. Throughout the day, people come and bring me a situation like, I feel I'm losing my confidence in this particular case. What am I supposed to do? Or I think my manager isn't supporting me, and I'm feeling lost and alone. Or I don't know how to deal with this particular person in this particular situation. And what I do all day long is help people see that situation in a different way and reframe what they can say. So they always walk out going, I hadn't seen it that way. And there's this lift because suddenly you see a new possibility, a new option that you hadn't seen before. And that option then allows them to change their mode of reaction and allows them to become more effective? Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, let me see if I can give you a concrete example so this makes some sense. The, um, so one of the conversations is, I feel like my manager isn't supporting me. All right. My first question on that one is, where's the evidence? It turns out their action is, isn't. It turns out that the manager isn't doing something that this particular person would wish the manager would do. But the manager isn't doing it. So now, have you communicated that to the manager? No. Well, how could you? What are the words you could say to the manager that doesn't make you sound idiotic or pleading or weak, but that you could say, hey, manager, I really do a better job. I'm really more engaged if you could do this thing for me. Now, the manager may do it or may not do it, but all I did was give that person a way to have that conversation. And suddenly there's not this sense of I'm alone and nobody's behind me. It's, oh, well, I could try that. It might work. It might not work. And that's what I do. So let me give you another example, one that I'm hearing more and more these days. Somebody comes to you and says, I am so angry. I have so much anger built up around X, Y, and Z with my peer. I want to either I want to or I have just, you know, gone off the deep end and yelled at them in a corporate situation. Mm-hmm. How do you, what would you do then? 
I had one of those yesterday, too. It's funny. I think <laughs> it's something people... Day, right? This is reality. Okay, so if you've really gone off the deep end, you know, the first thing I want to know is how badly. Like, was it really bloody? In this particular case, it was a little bit, wasn't too, too bad. But you know, if you've yelled at somebody, you won't owe an apology. I mean, that's just human. So, it, you know, just to say, I'm sorry... I shouldn't have yelled at you. You don't have to give any justification, any explanation, but that's an appropriate thing to say. And then you don't have to have any further conversation about it. You just kind of, I'm sorry, I'll try to do better. I think people appreciate that. I think that's appropriate. But the second thing to look at is why are you angry? What's that anger really about? So now the first thing you're going to tell me is I'm angry with my colleague for what my colleague has done. Well, really? So with this particular individual, what I was doing was saying, well, what's that anger about? When did you feel that anger before? What are you really afraid is going to happen? Because anger is often something's going to happen bad to me and I'm worried about what it is. Well, you know, as it turns out in this particular case, it's not always about the immediate situation. It can sometimes be, you know, I've been with colleagues like this before and they undermined me and I ended up leaving a job I really liked and I don't want to be in that place again. So the anger isn't always the immediate. So for the individual to understand what's that emotion anger really truly about, what are you genuinely really afraid of? And when you know that, now you're in a much better place to be able to turn to the individual to decide what I want to say. So to be able to say, you know, yeah, I'm sorry, I yelled at you, uh, but I might also want to say, you know, I'm much more effective if I can have advance warning that this is what you're going to need from me. That's it. So what you're talking about is, one, not displacing anger from one past situation to a current one. Mm-hmm. Two, understanding the crux of where, of where the anger stems from. Mm-hmm. And three, as you said before, putting that into some kind of conversation, probably a courageous conversation, as opposed to just going into reaction. Is that yeah. right? That's what I believe. But now the, you know, putting it into conversation is, is takes skill and is very hard for yeah. someone to do that for themselves, particularly when there's emotion. So having somebody who can help you script that in a neutral way so that you're neither one up nor one down is really, really helpful. But that's what makes a difference in the quality of the conversation you're going to have. Now, there's never guarantee, you know, the other person's going to respond the way you want them to respond, but you at least feel better about having said it. Got it. Great points. So you, you're thinking about purpose. You're thinking about your own purpose. And I think from our conversations that you're thinking a lot about purpose-driven leadership. Mm-hmm. So could you talk a little bit about that uh, writ large? <laughs> I don't know is the answer. I am thinking about it is the correct answer. Um, <laughs> certainly there's some fabulous research out there. Uh, Aaron Hurst, again, as having some, a good chunk of this, to say that at the moment, it looks like organizations that are purpose-led have an easier time attracting talent, have an easier time save, uh, retaining talent, therefore are going to save money because it doesn't cost as much to both retain and attract, that people are more engaged, that there's more innovation and creativity, that there's better work relationships, there's better team environment, there's better culture. I mean, we could go on. It looks really pretty good. 
But we don't have an awful lot of these. And, you know, it's easy to talk about places like um, Tom's Shoes where they're giving back to a social cause and everybody feels so good about being a part of that. It's harder to talk about what the purpose-led really looks like when we're a disparate group of businesses joined together, let's say, in a financial services institution. Yeah, we're making money for our clients. We're helping our clients do things. Yes, I get that. But it's hard to have a more shared sense of purpose in those kind of organizations. And I'm the jury is still out with me on what purpose-led looks like in that case. What I do believe is being able to talk about your purpose as a leader, what you care about as a leader, whether it's the same as your organization or not, I, I will hold the jury on that one. But to have that story for yourself, I am firmly convinced is inspiring. Even if people don't 100% agree with it, the fact that you've thought about it and you can tell that story matters. Now, that's a fascinating observation. We're not talking about the large corporate purpose, which can sometimes go into branding or voice. We're talking about the individual uh, executive within that corporation or organization's purpose. Well, well, what about if a purpose is at variance? Well, it can be. be you know, yeah. It can be. It can be. I mean, so when I'm talking, and again, if Aaron were on the show, he would completely disagree with me about that. And that's okay. That's what I think at the moment. Um, (laughs) What you're doing when you tell your purpose is I'm showing you who I am as a leader. I'm showing you what I care about, what I value. And I think that's at the heart of authenticity and it's at the heart of vulnerability. And I know that's what people respond to. So I might, assuming that your values are not totally misaligned with my values, I might be able to respect that your purpose is not my purpose, but I can appreciate that you have one. Very interesting. Very interesting. So a lot of these insights, Wanda, let's just go back for one second. How many people have you coached over your career, do you think? I have no earthly idea. I know that my staff counted one year how many people I had been in front of, both in terms of programs, speaking engagements, webinars, and it was over 2,000. So um, one-on-one hundreds, I can't even begin to count it. But often when I'm doing a seminar, we'll do some follow-up coaching on that one, and then you start adding thousands to the numbers easily. Okay, so you touch a lot of people. The way you think touches a lot of people. Um, I, I, I know we're go- you've, you're, uh, you've written a lot of books, and I know that you also have one that is about to come out in June. Is that right? That's correct. June 18th. Mark your calendars. All right. And I'm looking at it on Amazon right now where you can pre-order it, and uh, it's called You Can't Know It All. Learning in the Age of Deep Expertise. Wanda, what's your purpose in writing this book? (laughs) My purpose in writing this is a correct or wrong. I'm being very bold in my statement about that one. But let me explain why I say that. You know, I do all this coaching. I talk to all these individuals. And certainly I have all the academic training of the background. And I could spout for you, you know, leadership theory and the standard wisdom and a whole bunch of stuff. And in particularly this notion that you start out by being an individual contributor and then you lead a team and then you lead manager of managers and we go on up the food chain. 
But every organization, I was doing a lot of work with professional organizations. Every time I walk in a professional organization, that is not how people, it's not what people were struggling with, and it's not where the issues were. So I get called to come in and say, do some frontline leadership. It wasn't what people needed. That wasn't what they were struggling with. So the book really is out of the growth of what I watched people struggling with. And here's the best explanation I can give you. I think the truth of leadership is that we ask you to lead first as an expert. You're a bit of the hero, if you will. You know what needs to be done. Um, I can be assured as your boss that it's safe. You're going to protect. You're going to be, you know, manage the risk. There's not going to be anything major goes wrong on there. Yes, there be some things you don't know, but probably nobody knows it because you're the expert. And your job is to train, to coach, to teach, to coerce, to motivate people to do what you already know how to do. And it sets up a whole style of how you lead. There's nothing wrong with that. We need expert leaders. They're not going anywhere. They're really valuable. They're in some ways the heroes of the organization. If you think about it in an engineering company, the engineer that was really at the core of the design of the engine and something goes wrong with that engine in a client somewhere, the client wants to talk to that engineer and that engineer can help the client solve that problem. And that engineer is the hero of the organization because of it. And that's exactly what I mean. We love it. It's fabulous. And this is what clients pay for is that expert knowledge. But often then we ask those expert leaders, and sometimes they're leaving enormously large parts of the organization. We ask them to take on something that is literally out of their comfort zone, meaning it's not a thing they know how to do. Somebody else does know how to do it, and they're going to lead to that other person, but they don't know how. And then everything you know about leading is called into question. Suddenly, why should anybody follow me? Um, what's my value? I mean, I can't do the work, so why does anybody need me? You feel incredibly vulnerable. What am I doing if I'm not doing the work? What's my job? What, where's my contribution? What's that about? And People don't come to me for the expert. They go to my team for the expertise. So how am I supposed to talk to people? And, you know, just the whole framing around what it means to lead when you are not the expert, it was stumbling people. And I was watching people fail coming and going because they didn't understand that there are two versions. And you literally sometimes wear the expertise leader hat and sometimes wear the non-expertise leader hat, what I've called spanning. Particularly, I watch women struggle with this one, Davia, because women love the expertise leadership role. We can let my work speak for itself. And so the book is really about helping people understand that it's natural growth to get out of your comfort zone and lead when you don't know everything. And how do you do it? Well, I think that that is a that is a very interesting statement, and um, one thing that one starts to think about as you're talking about this is that when you are leading without having the subject matter expertise necessarily that um, is needed for the job, you, it starts to uh, invoke the um, pretender principle, if you will. Yeah, the fact that maybe you. Um, you aren't, you don't have what you say you have, and that is something that derails a lot of people, especially in, in, in my dealings, it sometimes derails a lot of women. 
Yeah, the imposter a lot of, syndrome. I think it's, yeah, it's the, often the imposter syndrome. Yeah, Harold Hillman has a fabulous book on that, and he's been a guest on this show as well too. Uh, the imposter syndrome. Uh, every human being I've ever talked to who's ever pushed themselves to do something they don't necessarily know how to do suffers with the imposter syndrome at the moment in time. You're sitting there wondering when is it going to be that they find out that I don't know, and. <laughs> Everything falls apart. You know, everything I have created at this point falls apart. And, you know, most of us, when we put you in those out-of-the-comfort-zone roles, we know you don't know, and we know that's okay. So would you quit worrying about it? Like, I can't see you don't need. One of my favorite CEOs, John, talks about when he took over IT and he says, you know, I took over the IT function and I could barely knew where to turn on the computer at this point in time. My secretary had to come in and help me with it. And I couldn't fake it. Like everybody knew I didn't know. But you go on because somebody believes that you have something of value to bring to that organization like IT. And it isn't your technical knowledge. It's something else. You got to figure out what that is and do that thing, and that's where you start to get out of the imposter, the worry about the imposter syndrome. Yep, because I guess none of us is born knowing everything, or even very much of anything. So it's a continual uh, cycle of learning and yeah. and and showing. Um, how else do you work with people who um, have a version of the imposter syndrome? How do you help them find out what their special leadership traits are that they're that are they're really wanted for? Yeah, the um, so I was talking to a guy this week who's just made a major move, and he is truly out of his comfort zone. He's doing something he's never done before. Doesn't know an awful lot about. He's got a team underneath him who does. And you know, the team is sort of sitting there going, "Well, why do we need you?" And yeah. he's sitting there going, oh, why do they need me? But the truth is, he has fabulous relationships into headquarters. And of all the things the team needs, they need better relationships into headquarters. They need a little more transparency around the strategic direction. They need somebody who can go and lobby for some of their efforts internally. They need a bit more integrating with a grand vision. And he can do that. He also has an amazing network that he can open the doors to help his team solve some problems they can't solve by themselves or find, um, build their own network or create some mentor relationships or find some new opportunities. He has tons of ways in which he adds value to that team. It just isn't going to be on the technical knowledge. And did he get that? Did he begin to get that? He did to begin that. You know, so that when I'm working with somebody on this one, the number one thing is they have to get in their head that how I used to add value and how I add value now are not the same. When you get that mindset in your head that I'm not going to add value the way I've always had value, then you can say, right, what's the work I need to be doing if I'm not doing the work my team is doing? What is it I'm doing? Where's my value add? And once you're on that journey, then we can really begin to unpack it and help you see where it is the team needs your support. And does that also open up a line of sight into where you could be going that doesn't just involve expertise? Yeah, once you realize that it is possible to lead without knowing everything. Now, I I don't believe you can lead anything 
knowing nothing. I'll be clear about that. I think we need some knowledge. We got to dig in and learn some things, but we don't have to become the experts in order to lead. So once you've done that one time, the next opportunity that comes along is a little less threatening. And what I see is, and I'm going to say particularly the men, but also the women, who advance in the organization, who sort of just, you know, kind of go all the way up to the very top of the organization, take a series of those high-risk moves where they go way out of the comfort zone, and in doing that, they build a new network, they learn a new set of skills, they figure out how to deal with a different set of people, they have a broader perspective, and they become more valuable at the next step. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess, that a certain number of people don't take those, those leaps, those risks, because they're afraid of failing. Um, do, you have any, do, you, do you work with people who either have failed before or are afraid of doing it? And how do you motivate them to, to risk again? <laughs> the first thing, Davia, is you find somebody who hasn't failed, and you, I find somebody who's taken no risk whatsoever. <laughs> They will have suboptimized every business they've been in because they played it really safe. And that's what I do with people is I try to get them to see that every person around them has made, some of them, major failures. I mean, phenomenal, like plastered all over the newspaper failures. Some of them not quite so obvious, but everybody's encountered a failure. So now the question is not if, it's when and what do you do with it? So when is you pick yourself up and you move on. And some of that is, okay, so there was a mistake here. Who do I need to tell about it? Um, What do I need to say? What do we need to say that we learned? What systems we put in place to make sure it doesn't happen before? And I go. And sometimes those are reputational damaging, as you will know from your own work. And it means I have to rebuild my career. I may have to pick up and go somewhere else. Sometimes I just have to sort of hang tight for a year or two and kind of show people again I'm not going to make that big of a mistake. Most of them are not life-threatening if you don't try to hide it. Yeah, covering it over is a, is a bad thing. In not, in what you're saying, too, there is that uh, there is a corporate penalty box. Sometimes you do have to go into it and take your your medicine, if you will. But if you do that with the right spirit and the right um, uh, way of learning from your mistakes, then you can come out of the penalty box, go on to other things, right? Yeah. I mean, that may be something that may be something that women don't understand quite as well as men. Do you see that at all? I do see that. I see that women are, feel that they're already so much in the spotlight that everything that they do is kind of just a form of gossip co- constantly because they are very visible. So that makes you a little more afraid of making a mistake. Um, and, David, that's a perfect place to take a break. That's great. We're going to come back and we're going to talk more about women in the workplace, diversity, and what it adds. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. 
You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. So today we truly are out of the comfort zone because this is Davia Temin, uh, a crisis and reputation manager and coach who has been on Wanda's show a number of times. And today we're turning the tables. I'm actually interviewing Wanda to get her ideas about what it is that she does with the overall goal about talking of talking about what makes great leadership. So today, uh, everyone is talking pretty much around the world that diversity and inclusion actually make and ensure great leadership. But that doesn't mean that it's without, uh, that, that it's across the board and that uh, it can't have some problems too. So we know that Wanda's practice uh, extends around the world uh, with women and with men. And we want to go in this half of the show a little bit more into diversity. So, Wanda, in your practice, which we now know encompasses thousands of people, um, how many women or what percentage of women versus what percentage of men? And what are the differences you've seen over the years? (laughs) So I spent, I think, about 65% of the people that I'm in front of are women. And about 35% of men. Now, that has shifted over the years. When I started, I would say it was 95% men and 5% women. And we sort of, that that practice has grown largely because there's been so much emphasis on how do we help women advance um, and help them with their careers. The um, 
And, you know, I, I, it's interesting. People always want to talk about the differences in male leadership and female leadership and so on. And I get pretty strong views on this one, even though I know I have some fabulous colleagues who will adamantly disagree with me about this one. And at the end of the day, Davia, I ask people around the world over and over and over again to name somebody that's an admired leader who that you think in your organization is amazing. And why? What is it about them? And they give me a list of qualities. The list mm-hmm. of qualities looks pretty much the same over the last 10 years and mm-hmm. virtually identical any place in the world you want to go, any company, any industry. If you look to that list of qualities, and I do, I ask people about this all the time, there's no difference in male, female. There's a lot of individual difference in terms of, for example, whether I'm a very outspoken kind of gregarious person or whether I'm a rather quiet person. That's going to change my style of leadership and it's going to change who likes working with me or not liking work with me. It has some positives and it's going to have some negative dark sides as well. That would be true for every single quality we would list. But there's no gender difference in that. There's an individual difference. So I'm pretty much convinced that great leadership is great leadership. Now, it may be harder for women to do some components than others. I mean, even that I'm not even sure I believe. So I don't think there's a whole lot of difference in what it takes to be for men or for women to be great leadership. I think the journey getting to the top is very different for women than it is for men. Let's talk for just one minute before we go to the journey about what those aspects of great leadership are. If you, I'm sure you can't name all of them, but if you, if we could go into just a couple. Okay. All right. Well, you know, they always fall in buckets. It's interesting. There's about seven or eight buckets of qualities that I hear from people. One of them has to do with the talent that you acquire. So, you know, your great leaders always tend to have great people around them. They hire really well. They promote people. They really develop them. They give really good feedback. They coach. They do all of that stuff that makes they both find the talent and take care of the talent along the way. And what that means is they listen. They have to be good listeners because you can't give feedback and coach if you're not listening. Um, the second thing people say is, I know where the heck we're going. And it's not that grand strategy stuff that we would teach in a business school. It's, I know what we're trying to do in this group, and I understand what the number one priority is for us. And I can now, I know where I contribute to it. So that sense of direction. They are not micromanagers. Absolutely, totally. That is the number one problem I have when people are complaining about a boss that's a micromanager. Oh. And they tend to run to air cover, you know, like like they protect me. And then there's this whole trust, authenticity, integrity, inspiration thing that matters tremendously. Interesting. And can somebody be a great leader if they're missing one of these buckets? Sure. Nobody has all of them. Okay, nobody has all of them. And, you know, anybody that, let's just take the one on trust, for example. I don't care who you're leading, you're gonna not going to have 100% of the people working for you who trust you at the same level other people do. But you work at it. It's that willingness to kind of constantly work at it and get a little bit better at it each day and to ask for the feedback and to listen to the feedback and to say, how else can I do that that's going to make that a tiny bit better That's what I see the really great leaders do. They're just constantly seeking what else is going to work, what else, what else, what else. So they don't see those suggestions as threats. 
as no. to what they haven't done yet, which some people could do, but they see yeah. them as opportunities. That's right. They see it as opportunities. This, this, if I see it as a threat, then I become defensive. It's just a natural, normal human reaction. And the moment I'm defensive, I'm not listening to you anymore, and I'm not figuring out what it is that you need, and I'm not thinking about how do I have this conversation with you in a way that gets us both to a better place at the, at the other side of the day. So that defensiveness stuff, which we all deal with, you kind of have to constantly work at it. I think that's what the real leadership journey is about, is understanding where my defenses are coming from, why, how, what triggers them, and what do I do with them? Interesting. So let's then move uh, on the on the the path of the journey, mm-hmm. um, the heroine's journey, if you will, um, to how the path can differ, how the journey can differ uh, between women and men, and how you counsel women to take that journey and steps okay. along the way. All right. So. The accumulation of experiences that you're going to need to get to the top of the organization are probably the same for anybody. You know, you got to have some exposure to the biggest client segments. You got to have some understanding of the financial metrics. You got to have some understanding of the operational controls. I mean, this is the categories of experience that you have to have. You can't just go up a single stovepipe. A silo and think that that makes you credible at leading this leading a large organization so there's a series of experiences now to get those series of experiences as we've already said I have to get out of my comfort zone all right one of the, the things I think happens for women is a we're a little scared to get out of the comfort zone because ooh that doesn't feel very good but two it's already pretty lonely it's kind of you, you know it's that and adding one more thing to it is scare is even more scary. So, we do this by the way. I give a shout out to Lucy for having given me this analogy that I just find is a brilliant way of understanding it. And she says, "Imagine as a guy that you were going to go and attend a yoga class, and you've made your appointment, you're set. You go to the yoga class, you take the last position that's in the yoga class." And you look up to see that you're the only guy in the room. <laughs> and you don't leave. Now you're going to stay and do the yoga class because you can do the yoga. You can do the work. It's not a problem. You're going to do it a little differently perhaps than the women around you. Your body bends a little bit differently. It's okay. And Maybe when the instructor comes over and instructs you on how to you know, move your hips in a different way, it's a little awkward. But you're still going to do it because you can do the work. And it's worth it and you're meant to be there. And you know, it's not a, none of that's a mistake. But at the end of the yoga class, A, you feel like everybody was watching you, and B, you're probably just a bit more exhausted than the women in the class. <laughs> and that's yeah. what it's like along the journey, is it just, it feels more lonely, and it's a little harder. It's harder to build those connections. It's harder to get those mentors. It's harder to know, do I ask for this? Do I not ask for this? How do I ask for this? Just harder. So there's there's less of a of a trodden pathway, if you will, uh, for you to go. And, and in some ways, you're probably feeling a little bit like a pathfinder yourself. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And the, you know, the secret you don't just get up and say, "Oh, right, I'm going to know how to do everything that I need to do today and the next day and the next five years and the next twenty years." 
the people who really succeed on the top of the organization know that they reach out to other people and say, how do you do this? And great, will you come and do it for me? You don't try to do it all yourself. But I find women and frequently other underrepresented groups somehow believe that I'm supposed to do it all myself. So they don't reach out and then their confidence suffers because you can't do it all. Right? There's no way you can know it all. Well, they probably have gotten so far because they have done a lot of it themselves already. And surrendering just a little bit of that control so that they can get help may feel risky to them. Yes, I think it does. I think it feels like somehow, you know, the rules up until this point made me successful by doing it myself. That's the expertise track, though. When I do it myself, I can be the expert. But now I'm asking you not to be the expert leader, to take that risk, to move on to a broader stage. And there you can't try to do it all yourself. So how do women take to your coaching them to get help, open it up, ask for it, um, sort of more partnerships, more collaborations to help you become a better leader or continue your climb of leadership? Yeah. I mean, and generally they take the, they get the idea, but now there's the, can we go do it? Can I really go do it? Because then I, you know, oh my gosh, there's that politics thing that I have to deal with. And now there's those tricky personalities and I have to figure out how to have the right conversations and the right relationship with them. Ooh, and I now have to actually build my network rather than just sit here in my comfort zone with the people I normally work with. So it does push you to do things that are not as easy to do when you're underrepresented person in a group. And I say that's whether it's gender or whether it's race or whether you're the only marketing person in an engineering company. I mean, it's the same thing. I feel like, ooh, how am I supposed to connect to those other people? I don't understand them. And Mm -hmm. it is, you know, you still have to do it. And conceivably, they don't understand me. Exactly. (laughs) But now we're back to where I started. It's the quality of the conversation and thus the quality of the relationship. Interesting. So what do people do if they don't have a coach? <laughs> Find a mentor. <laughs> yeah. Find a friend in the company. I mean, one of the things that I encourage women to do, and I would say the same for any other underrepresented group, is find some other folks who are like you. Even if they're not perfectly like you, they don't have to be very senior. They can be your same level, even lower, just to have somebody who's having the same experience and talk to them about what's really going on. Don't just do that everything's great thing. Yeah. Talk about it because you're all having the same kinds of experiences. Um, and that is just so freeing to realize it isn't all about me. Oh, this is the journey on the career. But one thing that strikes me is that um, you have to have a lot of trust to be able to do that, trust in the people who you're talking to. And let's face it, occasionally people will try to torpedo you. A lot of of talk about the queen bee syndrome, a lot of talk about women not supporting one another. I actually have not found that to be true either in my own career or in my practice. Uh, I've found far more women who do support one another. But, but what do you think about that, and what, have you, what are your observations? All right, I have two statements about this one, and again, like everything else, I have very strong opinions about it. You know, I've done tons of interviews inside companies around where they are on the diversity agenda and what's working and not working, and I will always hear inside every company, somebody will say, well, she, Sarah, 
is a queen bee and she's not helping anybody. And then I go and talk to Sarah. Sarah's helping lots of people. She's just not helping that person that was telling me the story about Sarah being a queen bee. And you don't always see it. You don't always know why Sarah's not helping me when she's helping other people. So I'm highly skeptical about the queen bee syndrome now. But I will also tell you when I work with younger women, mid-career women in the organization, their biggest managerial problems are other female managers, not male managers. And it's because too many of those senior females are still holding on to this perfectionist. You know, we can't make any mistakes and everything has to be perfect. And I have to be so, oh, in control. And they leave a micromanaging climate. So they're not doing all those things that make for great leaders. Right? Interesting. That becomes the problem. And it's not about male or female. It's about the individual style. Now, it gets labeled as male or female. Right. Right. I, I, yeah. yeah. I want to add one more piece to this one, too, because I do, I say this all the time. Um, I do think that women don't do well when there's power difference. That that as young girls and growing up, we develop a philosophy around equality, that we're all the same. And we don't deal with hierarchy. Boys, young men growing up, learn very early on where they are in the hierarchy and get comfortable with where they are in the hierarchy. And, you know, it's no big deal. You can kick further and I can spit further is what I always say. But when we get a power difference in a male-female, in a female-to-female, none of us are quite prepared to know how to navigate that. And both sides of the equation need to understand that you're contributing to the struggle, to that power struggle. Uh, yes. And um, so both sides need to get... What can um, men do to make women more comfortable? What can women do to make men more comfortable? You know, I come back to conversations. Uh, you know, okay, so there are some men in the organization who aren't going to be interested in helping. They're just not interested. I don't care. There are plenty who are. Find mm-hmm. them. Find them. And now I want you to take not a massive risk. Let me tell you everything that's gone wrong. I want you to take a tiny risk to open up just a bit, tiny little bit, so it's safe with that guy. Like Lucy saying, let me tell you about what it's like. It's like a yoga class. Just find a way of saying what it's like. Because when you do that little bit and you find that the male colleague reciprocates, as in, oh, I can imagine that. I can get that. I hadn't thought about it that way. But let me tell you what it's like for me. Yeah. Now we're having a conversation and now we have colleagues and now we're starting to build that trust. So, I, I mean, I just, you, I come back down to where I started at the beginning. It all turns on the quality of the conversation. If I can get more of those conversations going, women are going to find they have more allies than they realized. And men say to me, too, by the way, Davia, I want more women around me. I prefer women as my colleagues and my allies than some of those men as well. And I, we are to gang up on them, is my opinion. <laughs> Yep, and so so where does all of this, I mean, we hear about it all the time now. Um, I do an enormous amount of work with the, the Me Too movement with boards and with the C-suite, maybe where there have been abuses, where they're worried about these kinds of things, where they have to maybe let a CEO go or somebody high up go with people who accuse. 
uh, with people who are falsely accused. This whole conversation that has opened up um, has also gotten a lot of guys worried about mentoring a woman. Or what I hear is, uh, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go traveling with a single female uh, associate or I wouldn't have dinner with her because uh, she's going she's to um, accuse me of sexual harassment. And so this could have a real deleterious effect on women being able to learn from um, male mentors or sponsors in a trustworthy way. Yeah. Are you hearing that, and what do you have to say about it? I am hearing it all over everywhere, but I will also tell you, before the hashtag MeToo movement, I heard it anyway. I heard <laughs> men say regularly, I don't want to give her feedback in case she goes to HR and I get in trouble. So I'll just deal I've with it. Yeah. Too. Yeah, I get less of the cry. Men don't seem to be all that worried about crying anymore. Um, and so, Davy, in the four minutes we have left, I'm not going to do justice to this one, to be quite honest. So let me start with saying anybody who has power and abuses that power deserves what they get. Okay? And we're seeing a lot of abuse of power in lots of ways, yep. not just a gender, but in a whole host of ways that are just unacceptable. All right, we all have to stand up against that one. But on the presumption that there isn't an abuse of power, that now we're just sitting down trying to have a dialogue, in some ways, you know, maybe we're not going to go to the dark corner of the bar to do that, but we can certainly go to a nice coffee bar and have that conversation, or we can meet over breakfast. Or I, you could ask her, is this comfortable for you or not? I don't want to get it wrong. I uh-huh. think... It, the just putting that out and saying, let's be clear about this. Let's make this easy, but I still want to help you. I care about your career and I want to see you succeed. Um, now, I'm going to say on the other side, as women, we also have to be willing to say what it is we need from our male managers and sponsors. What do I need you to do? What would I wish you would do? What makes me comfortable in doing um, too many times we hold back and just assume they will figure it out. Now, you know, I don't think that's a good one either. So if you find that it's uncomfortable in his office, for example, meeting after office hours, I, I think you have to say, can we meet somewhere else? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you may not have been able to do this the justice that you would like to, but in a very brief period of time, you've given some real clear and cogent guidance. Um, so I think we're going to have to say that in your next interview, we'll talk more about that. So I, this is Davia Temin sitting in for Wanda Wallace, interviewing Wanda Wallace. And um, I hope, Wanda, that you've had as much fun with the tables turned as I have. Yeah, it's not so bad. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Wanda, we'll see you back here next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.